Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and it's Wednesday, so we dive into meditation in order to help you build up your practice. This is the third class of a four-part series where I'm helping you to build up your loving-kindness meditation practice. In the four-part series prior to this, I helped you build up your breathing mindfulness meditation practice. But now we're doing loving-kindness meditation and helping you build that up because these are the two primary forms of meditation that Gautama Buddha taught as part of the path to enlightenment because they address two of the three major problems that he discovered in the unenlightened mind. He discovered craving, anger, and ignorance as being the three primary high-level problems that are in the mind, and breathing mindfulness meditation addresses the craving, and loving-kindness meditation addresses the anger, the hatred, or the ill will. We talked about the 10 fetters in our Sunday class, and one of those fetters that we talked about eliminating is ill will. And this is where the mind has this aggression or this anger, this bitterness, this hostility, this pushing away of painful feelings, thinking that that's going to solve the problem and pushing away people and situations. So what loving kindness meditation does for us is it helps us to now reside loving and kind with all beings, having this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And by cultivating loving kindness and meditation, then you can practice loving kindness in your daily life, where now through your intention, speech, and actions, you treat everybody polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Because the reason why you experience hostility and aggression and bitterness and things like this from people that are close to you is because that's what you're putting out. So if you put out impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful intentions, speech, and actions, then that's what will come back to you. But even an enlightened being, there's still going to be the occasional situation where people are disrespectful or people are impolite or unkind or unfriendly because there's going to be people that have craving, anger, and ignorance in their mind, and they're going to perceive things that we do in unwholesome ways because everything that someone takes into their mind, it's being filtered through their own pollutions of mind. So oftentimes if someone has anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind, when they look out into the world, that's what they see because they're looking through that ill will in order to look at the world. But when you clear out that pollution and you look out at the world, you see this joy and you see this peacefulness and you see this love and kindness. And sure, an enlightened being knows that there's difficulties and struggles and suffering in the world, but we choose to look out at the world in positive and healthy ways. So by you 
cultivating loving kindness in your mind through loving kindness meditation, and then you practice loving kindness with all beings around you, more and more, the people that you interact with on a daily basis will treat you with loving kindness as well. You'll get that coming back to you because that's what you're putting out. But even still, there's going to be occasional contact with people that are you know, hateful and vindictive and bitter. But by that point, as you get closer to enlightenment, you'll train your mind to know that that's just that person's pollution of mind, that you didn't do anything to cause their discontentedness. You didn't do anything to cause their anger. They're causing it themselves. And then they're just choosing to vent that out on you. So you can just choose to let that go. And even though people are going to talk to you in hateful ways, you can choose to remain unaffected. And that's what the Buddhist teachings are all about, is just train the mind to let that go, realizing that that's other people's anger and ill will. So through this loving kindness meditation that you do, it's like filling up your gas tank. It's filling up your gas tank with this loving kindness and cultivating it in the mind, permeating it in the mind, and Ultimately, you permeate this loving kindness and fill it up in the mind so much that it never gets depleted. When you're making your way to enlightenment, you need to continually fill up the mind with this loving kindness and help it to permeate in the mind so that you can go out into the world and practice through your intention, speech, and actions, being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. But over time, if the mind's not enlightened, you'll feel kind of the loving kindness diminish a little bit. And that's why it's important to have that consistent practice daily where you're constantly filling up your loving kindness. And eventually you get to the point where the loving kindness is just always there. Even when you choose to maybe not meditate, you know, here and there, the loving kindness is just permeating and filled up in the mind so much, nobody can eliminate it because you've actually eliminated the ill will. You've eliminated the anger, the hatred, the bitterness, the aggression, the resentment, all of these discontent feelings and others have all been eliminated from the mind. So the loving kindness is just always there. But that's a practice. That's the gradual training that the Buddha talks about, the gradual practice, and then you see this gradual progress. So I would like to share with you the slide that I share as I teach loving kindness meditation, just as a reminder to help you remember what I've taught. I've, I've used many different slides over the course of this series, but I would like to just share this last one before we actually do our meditation so that you can remember how I actually structure the meditation. And then I'll open up to any questions just before we do our meditation. Is that first we start out with chanting, then we move into breathing mindfulness meditation, then we do the loving kindness meditation, then we go back to breathing mindfulness meditation, and then we go to chanting. This is how we kind of book end our loving kindness meditation. It's like this loving kindness sandwich, right? We've got chanting on the outer edges. We've got breathing mindfulness on the inner edges. And then we've got loving kindness in the middle. And when we get to that point where we're doing loving kindness, I'm going to be saying these affirmations to guide you in your meditation. I will say, may I be peaceful. 
And when you hear me say that, you just repeat that in the mind. And you do that on the out breath, wherever you get to your out breath, because your breath isn't going to be synced up to my breath. You're doing your own practice here. I'm just here as a guide. So when you hear me say, may I be peaceful as an affirmation, you repeat that in the mind when you get to your next out breath. And then when you hear me say, may I be safe, you get to your next out breath and you repeat that in the mind. And then when you hear me say, may I be well, same thing, repeat that on the out breath. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. You repeat that on the out breath. Then I'm going to make these successively wider and wider rings where we'll go through not just the three that you see on your screen, but we'll actually go through the ones that I create for today's meditation. We'll probably do maybe five or six different rings as part of today's meditation session. And I tend to make these rings fairly general so that they apply to all people that are meditating with us. But when you do this on your own, you would like to customize these rings for your specific practice. You would like to customize it so that if there are certain people that you have in your life that you have loving kindness for and you would like to continue to encourage that, support that, don't allow that to fade, you would like to include those people in your meditation that you currently have loving kindness for. Then maybe there's some individuals or some groups of people that you're kind of a bit neutral about. You don't have hatred towards them, but you don't necessarily have overwhelming loving kindness for them either. So you would like to maybe include those people. And then there's people that you do maybe have anger, hatred, or ill will, or maybe even the lesser versions of like frustration, irritation, annoyance. And you would like to include them in your meditation as well so that you gradually erode that from your mind. This practice is about eroding that in your mind so that now when you're with those people or you think about those people or someone brings those people up in conversation, you have loving kindness and compassion for them that you don't have this anger, this hatred, this bitterness, this resentfulness. And then ultimately you would like to get to your last ring, which is all beings, because you're not interested in leaving any beings out whatsoever. You would like to have every meditation as you do loving kindness meditation to include starting with i meaning yourself and then getting to the point where you eventually move to the outermost ring which is all beings and in between you just put in people that you currently have loving kindness for people that you are more neutral about and people that you have difficulties with that you have hatred anger ill will towards even people that have died or people that you no longer see it's maybe been 5 10 20 years since you've seen people that maybe your mind is holding on anger hatred or bitterness for and you've got to train your mind to let that go so that you will no longer hold on to that ill will in the mind this is the way you uproot the ill will and you move it out by moving in the loving kindness you're moving out the anger hatred and ill will and this meditation is also really great for yourself if you have negative self-talk or you think and talk to yourself in unwholesome ways, degrading or diminishing ways. You can use this meditation to help you start to be more kind to this own being, right? There was a time when I first started 
this loving kindness meditation where I had that. I had that really bad negative self-talk. Even though I was really successful in business and the community, I just always looked at myself in very negative and unwholesome ways. So for a long time, I used to do this meditation directed only at me in order to eliminate that negative self-talk. And then eventually I moved into other people and I talk about how I had a really strained relationship with my mom growing up and it took me a good six months or so to eliminate the anger that I was harboring towards her. But then having done that, when I started to then have more of a relationship with her, there was no anger or hatred there towards her and we were able to develop a very wonderful relationship before she passed away. So this meditation is there for you. It's not actually meant for you to send loving kindness to other people and change them. All of the work on this path to enlightenment is to change your mind. So let me pause here before we actually go into the meditation itself and see if there's any questions that have maybe come up since you've been meditating throughout the week. And I'll just open up to those of you that are on Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put your questions in the comment section. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Um, Yes, sir, Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, This past week, uh, while deep in meditation, I'm suddenly seeing these very vivid images of people I don't know. And I don't understand where that's coming from. I wonder if you have any insight or guidance you could offer. Yeah, what this could be is it could be residual memories of past lives. This is sometimes how it manifests is that we observe these things and like we know we've never met these people. We know we've never interacted with these people in this life, but yet these memories are coming to the surface. There's other things that you might observe as you go forward, but it's clear in all the different conversations you and I have been having over the last few weeks that you're making some good progress in your life practice and your mind is definitely awakening based on all the things that we've been talking about. And this may be what that is, is that it seems like you're starting to experience the jhanas and that's typically where you start to observe past lives. Even though we talk about the jhanas as being four attainments that someone is going to experience prior to getting to the first stage of enlightenment, there's actually another four attainments that I teach in the Pali Canon study group that the Buddha discusses that these other four attainments, some of them everybody will experience, others like past lives, not everybody will experience, just some people experience those, some people don't. So that sounds like what it could be, but I don't know that necessarily for 100% certainty. So I should just move on. They, they fade away and don't pay much attention to them. Exactly. It's just impermanent. The memories may get more profound. It may not just be images of people. You might actually start having memories of things that happened in those lives in the past. And if those things start occurring, you just let it play out. You continue to focus on the breath. Just keep coming back to the breath. Realize that's in the past. Those things are no longer happening now. 
oftentimes when we get residual memories from past lives, it helps us to understand our current life better because there are certain things that happen in our current life that we just don't understand. Like, why do I feel this way? Why am I having these cravings? Why are the certain things happening in my life? Like there were times in my life where I've had this enormous craving to do carpentry work and to do handyman work. And I've never been trained. I've never had a job in that area, but I've just always had a desire, a craving to do that kind of work. And um, it wasn't until I started observing past lives that I understood this because the life prior to this, I was a carpenter. There was a time where I actually purchased a condo coming right out of college and it was a fairly new condo and I ripped apart the whole condo and essentially rebuilt it. I ripped out the carpet, I ripped out the wood floor, I ripped out drywall, I ripped out linoleum. I just completely rebuilt it, wallpaper, paint, crown moldings, all this other stuff. I just thought I was just doing handyman work. I was just interested in doing it. But it wasn't until many years later that I observed past lives that I understood that and I understood all these other things that were happening in my life throughout my life. So you can ignore these things. You can know that they're in the past. But if you start getting more and more solid or profound memories of things that did happen in these previous lives, they may just help shed some light on some things that you've experienced in this life. Thank you. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, regarding loving kindness meditation, it may be difficult at first for practitioners to practice this loving kindness meditation towards people like the active shooters in school shootings. We had one yesterday um, where 19 children were killed. Should we wait a while until feelings start to fade or should we begin right away when we notice feelings of anger towards someone like an active shooter in one of these events to start practicing loving kindness meditation, focusing on that being. You should never try to force or push real hard, but at the same time, there's times later in your practice where you may be interested in challenging your mind and that's healthy for you. But I've had the same question come from a new student here in Chiang Mai who's been studying with me for about a month and a half, two months. They have a really challenging relationship in their past and they just learned loving kindness meditation for the first time, you know, three weeks ago. And they're like, I can't imagine including that person in my loving kindness meditation right now because it would just shake me up so much. So my advice to them was, okay, you just learned loving kindness meditation. You know, you just learned breathing mindfulness meditation six weeks ago. So develop your breathing mindfulness meditation first for four weeks minimum. Then build up your meditation with loving kindness meditation because you're just learning it. So include, you know, people maybe like your mom or your dad or others that you might have loving kindness for and kind of get in the practice, the consistency of doing loving kindness meditation so you know the mechanics of it and how it works. And then when you're ready to tackle that past relationship, then you can always include them later. You don't have to do everybody right away. But for somebody who's maybe further along in their practice, maybe six months, a year, two years into their practice, they know how to do loving kindness meditation really well. And there's something like this, this active shooter that maybe there's some anger. I would encourage you to, to get on top of that and put them into your meditation right away because 
if you allow these feelings of anger, hatred, and ill will to sit around, they're going to just get more firmly rooted. And this is what's going to feed the mental objects and make the ill will more deeply rooted. So as soon as you feel this anger coming in, okay, I would like to get rid of this stuff. Let me jump on this right away because it'll take maybe a week or two or three for the mind to let that go. But for the situation that I described before, this is a person who just got started. The relationship is like years old. They're just holding on to it. It's still in there. By allowing it to stick around for another couple of months isn't going to really make any real issues for them. So if they get to that relationship in their loving kindness meditation now, or they get to it two months from now, it's not going to make a big difference for them. But something new like this active shooter that you're talking about, you're not interested in allowing that to get deeply rooted in the mind. So as soon as you see it coming in, you should go ahead and get on top of that and put that into your loving kindness meditation so that you don't allow it to get firmly rooted in the mind. Understood, sir. Thank you. Um, related to that question, but a bit unrelated to meditation practice, when and if we are asked about our views on things like an active shooter, what are some ways we can respond in daily life when non practitioners are asking us about these things, sir? You can respond however you like. You know, there's no specific thing that the Buddha says you should or shouldn't do in terms of the content of how you reply, except, you know, he gives us those guidance on the five factors of well-spoken speech and practicing right speech. So expressing your views and opinions on things isn't going to necessarily cause any harm if you're going to be speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech. But what you have to always be aware of is, you know, the audience that you're speaking to, that if you're taking a certain position that is going to be confrontational, for example, that's going to cause you problems in relationships. So if you always think about not only the five factors of well-spoken speech, but the Buddha has those other teachings that we explore in the Pali Canon and English study group, where he talks about speech that is unwelcomed and disagreeable, that he knows the right time to use that speech. So Developing your speech is really important and understanding, you know, the right time to say things and what you're saying. If you have real strong views, like say somebody feels like guns are good, we need to have guns in society, it's really important to have guns around, there's a way to express that in a group of people that might be asking you that question. But would it be the right time to discuss that kind of thing when there's maybe people who have just lost loved ones in the audience with you, right? Like you have to know the right time to say these things. So there's not this like blanket way of saying, okay, there's this topic and this is the way that you should always speak other than the five factors of well-spoken speech and all the other guidance that the Buddha gives around speech. But in terms of the content of things that you say, that's up to you. That's up to your own way of thinking and your own way of sharing and your own goals and objectives of why you're speaking and who you're speaking to you know depending on how people function in society the buddha teaches people like me who are teachers to not speak about politics 
which is very wise for a teacher that's sharing these teachings not to speak about politics. He also talks about very impactful, like current events, something like a mass shooting. He talks about, you know, not discussing those because if a teacher takes sides, so to speak, in some big important event like this uh, or impactful event, then a teacher is kind of alienating the people who don't agree. So he doesn't suggest that teachers speak in ways that are going to essentially alienate students from learning with you. So that's why you never hear me talk about politics. You never hear me talk about current events in terms of my perspective and my views or opinions. The only time that I speak about these things is if students ask me how the Buddha taught and why these things are occurring or you know, what you can do to help you to eliminate any discontentedness related to these events. But you'll never hear me share a certain opinion about one thing or another related to politics or current events or things like that. Thank you, sir. Yep. But I'd like to add one thing to that, Miranda. Just because that's the way that I choose to practice doesn't mean that that's the way everybody should choose to practice because our roles in society are different. You know, I'm a teacher looking to help all beings versus maybe you're a community leader that needs to motivate people to advocate for having guns or maybe you're a community leader that needs to advocate for eliminating guns from your environment and from your community so the way that i choose to practice these type of things doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should choose to practice that way but in terms of right speech and the five factors of well-spoken speech and all those kind of things that would be wise for everybody to practice. That's understood, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Um, I'll zoom. Rick Millman has a question. He says, I wonder if it would help to refocus my meditation on the children and their loved ones first until the anger energy subsides. Then eventually I might focus on the active shooter. That's a perfect way to do it because you're working with people that you already have loving kindness for first and you're bringing that up in the mind and it's much easier to kind of fill up the mind and permeate the mind with loving kindness with people that you already pretty much have loving kindness for and then you move to those outer rings where they're a little bit more difficult and then that's also why we have that breathing mindfulness meditation on the tail end of this loving kindness meditation because oftentimes you might start your meditation with no anger whatsoever in terms of on the surface and then by the time you go through these rings it might bubble up anger to the surface and the way to end that and kind of let that go is to put that breathing mindfulness meditation at the end to cut that off and let that go if you have observed that there's anger that has arisen in the mind you're not interested in ending the mind with anger so you can have that breathing mindfulness meditation at the end if you observe that there's been some anger that has bubbled up in the mind and you're not interested in allowing that to continue so yes rick that would be wise and if you notice that the mind is angry after doing that ring for maybe the shooter then you've got that breathing mindfulness meditation at the end in order to train the mind to let that go thank you sir it does not appear there are any more questions at this time sir okay so let's go ahead and do our loving kindness meditation session and then afterwards we'll open up to any more questions that you guys have at the end of our meditation i'll guide you guys all the way through so go ahead and get your 
position so that you can feel comfortable either in the seated, lying, or standing positions. These are the three positions we use for loving kindness. We don't do the loving kindness meditation in the walking position, but seated, lying, or standing would be appropriate for loving kindness meditation. So usually you're learning in the seated position. So if you're on the floor, you probably have your legs crossed with a cushion maybe under to lessen the angle at the hips, knees, and ankles. If you're in a chair, you probably just have your feet flat on the floor or maybe cross at the ankles. Your lower body should be comfortable, not luxurious, not painful, but comfortable. The muscles should be unengaged. And then the hands and arms should be resting comfortably in the lap. The way that I teach this is the way that the Buddha did it, where he placed his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together and then put that in your lap. If that's comfortable for you, you can use it. But there's other options here, too, because this practice isn't about everyone doing it exactly the same. It's finding what's comfortable for you. So you might place your palms on your thighs or your knees or your arms on the armrest of a chair, whatever is comfortable for you. Your physical body, the lower body and the hands and arms should be completely relaxed and comfortable during the meditation. No muscles should be engaged at all. The upper body should be nice and erect. By keeping the upper body erect, this allows you to maintain the attentiveness or the alertness in the mind during the meditation. So you're not interested in being slouched, but you're not interested in being real rigid either. You would like to ensure that you have some erectness to the upper body to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Because the meditation, you should be doing work. And it's not a time to just zone out and daydream. It's a time to actually do work to actively train the mind in a dedicated, active, purposeful training session. Next, once the body's in position, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. This is the breathing mindfulness meditation that I'm going to guide you in first before we move into the loving kindness meditation. So just start breathing in through the nose, gradually inhaling. And whenever you get to the top of your inhale, then just do a nice gradual exhale. It should be a natural breath, a steady, consistent, natural breath. Not forced, not controlled, just a nice natural inhale through the nose. And an exhale through the nose, experiencing the full breath. Breathing in. And out. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and then I'll be back with some more guidance on breathing mindfulness meditation. You're welcome to join along in the chanting if you know these.
ಮಿ ಸುಪಥಿಪನೋ ಸಾಖೋ ಸಂಘಿ establishing a nice gradual breath a natural breath breathing in through the nose and out through the nose breathing in and out with this natural breath breathing in through the nose you would like to start fixating the mind on the breath the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose the breath is the present moment fixate the mind on the breath breathing in and out with the mind fixated on the breath whenever you observe that the mind moves off the breath cut that off let it go and come back to the breath the present moment 
Breathing in. And out. When a thought arises, there's no need to judge the thoughts, label them, don't even observe them. Just wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work. This is your practice. Fixating the mind on the breath. And whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
continuing to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Wherever you get to your next out breath, repeat this affirmation. May I be peaceful. safe. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. family be peaceful. May they be safe. discontentedness in the suffering it causes. peaceful.
may they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. all those whom I've never met before be peaceful. be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May all beings be peaceful.
May all beings be safe. discontentedness in the suffering it causes. Now go back to breathing mindfulness meditation. Focusing on the breath, cutting off any thoughts that arise and bringing the mind back to the breath. Breathing in and out.
I would like to just open things up to any questions that you guys have about meditation or really anything along this path to enlightenment because this past Sunday we spoke about what is enlightenment and perhaps you've had some questions that come up in the mind since that discussion on Sunday or maybe you have questions about breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation maybe you have questions about applying certain aspects of these teachings to your life this is a great time where you can just ask any and all questions by just putting that into Facebook YouTube or Zoom or in Zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any question that you like yes sir 
It has been noted that there are actual physical changes to the brain in people who have been meditating for a period of time. Does that show any kind of verifiable evidence towards someone actually moving towards enlightenment? Or is that something totally separate, sir? Yeah, so of course the Buddha didn't have any teachings that he talked about the brain because during his lifetime they didn't have CAT scans and MRIs and things like this. But I suspect where things are headed based on what I see with researchers and scientists and doctors that are researching the brain related to people who are meditating and enlightenment and these kind of things, I suspect at some point we're going to be able to confirm somebody that has attained enlightenment scan that in a CAT scan and MRI, know what that looks like on an image, and then we are then going to be able to observe these changes to the physical brain and then be able to verify when people are actually attaining enlightenment. Because whether somebody attains enlightenment or not is really only beneficial for that individual to know themselves. And each individual person is going to know whether they attain enlightenment or not. That's something that is part of these teachings that if you are progressing towards enlightenment and you actually attain it, you will know for yourself. But there are people out there that think that they're enlightened, but they're actually not. And having a CAT scan or MRI or things like this that are confirming what a brain looks like for someone that is enlightened, that will really make it nice for people to be able to then be able to get those scans and determine that. That's not something we have today, but I suspect over the coming decades that that's what we'll ultimately get to, is that these researchers will have understood enlightenment enough, they will have understood what they're looking at in CAT scans and MRIs, and have seen enough of those that they will be able to observe someone who's attained enlightenment through CAT scans and MRIs. That's very interesting, sir. Thank you. Yeah, on this same topic, Miranda, is I thought with the question you were going to ask is, is there any observable ways that you can tell yourself that the brain has changed as you're making your way to enlightenment? And one of the things I was going to share with you is that as you make your way closer and closer to enlightenment, you know, we talk about training the mind and purifying the mind and the mind comes to the middle and it performs more optimally. And this is where you oftentimes will see that a person who's moving closer to enlightenment, their skin complexion becomes very brightened. You yourself, you'll observe that the clarity in the eyes becomes more clear. You'll start seeing colors and more vivid colors because the brain is changing. And we know that the brain is totally involved in sight. The eye is really just a vessel. It's just like a it's just like a glass that it takes in the content. But sight is really occurring in the brain itself. So as people start to awaken and they're experiencing those jhanas and the various stages of enlightenment, you start getting this crisper and cleaner and more vivid colors that you see. You also start observing different smells and more profound smells. Same thing like taste. Taste starts to become more profound. The Buddha did talk about this 
during his lifetime. He talks about how as you near to enlightenment, you will experience some of these things with the purification of the mind that you'll see the heightening of the senses, that the senses will become more sensitive. So the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, bodily contact, and of course the mind, it becomes more sensitive because there's more awareness in the mind. There's more mindfulness that the mind is cultivated. So in the past, when we had this pollution in the mind and it was diluted, we were still taking in content through the six sense bases, but it wasn't being processed by the brain and the mind in the same way because there was all this pollution in the way. But once you get this pollution out of the way, you're still taking in content through the sense bases, but that content that you see in the eyes, things that you hear, smell, taste, touch, and so forth, it's actually more profound because now there's more awareness in the mind of the content that's coming through the sense bases. Can that ever be a hindrance, sir? Um, Because it happens during someone's um, I'll put it as walk towards enlightenment, walk on the path. Um, and then if that can be a hindrance, is that time that we really need to buckle down and start really guarding the sense doors? The hindrance that the Buddha talked about, there's multiple hindrances, but the hindrance that he talked about related to this is sensual desire, which is also a fetter, right? It's a, it's a taint, it's a pollution, it's a defilement. So as you clear out the pollution of the mind and the senses become heightened, but now you've got more wisdom and you understand how to now restrain the senses, you understand how to restrain the mind that this content coming in. So the mind is prepared for it and should be prepared for it. So the mind becomes more and more challenged as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. And that's why you need to have more and more control or discipline of the mind. Understood, sir. Thank you. Um, On Zoom, Rick Millman asks, if my mind is not really connected to Metta for others, would it help to bring it back to myself for a while? You can. The way that I do it is I always start with I and I finish with all beings. And I found that that's the way that works best. But for some people, if you're having that negative self-talk or that diminishing inner dialogue that I talk about, what I did for a period of time when I first started meditation, doing loving kindness meditation, is because I had that negative self-talk, I just did, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be free of discontentedness. And then I did it again. May I be peaceful, you know, all the way through all four lines, just like I teach. And I did that maybe four, five, six times, just I. And then I went all beings, right? And I did that for several weeks until I observed the diminishing of that negative self-talk and that diminishing inner dialogue. And then once I got loving kindness and compassion for this being, then I started expanding and now i just did i and then i went to another ring and another ring and another ring so your loving kindness meditation is dynamic it's fluid it's impermanent it's going to be constantly changing based on what it is that you need in your practice so if you feel like you need to cultivate a lot of loving kindness for i for this being that we call rick then by all means, do that. And there might be certain times where you increase that and there might be certain times where you don't need that as much. So this is where you have to have that mindfulness and that awareness of mind of what's going on in your own mind so that you can now customize this meditation based on your needs. And 
what you should remember is that change isn't going to occur in just one meditation. So that's why when I was working on cultivating loving kindness for this being David, it took several weeks to eliminate the negative self-talk and inner dialogue towards David. And then it took several months to eliminate the anger, hatred, and ill will and cultivate this loving kindness for my mom. So we shouldn't think that we, you know, it's like a plug and play where we just, you know, insert somebody in our meditation once and then, okay, we've got loving kindness for that person. It's going to take much more time to transform the mind. So if you kind of are observing the mind and you kind of observe certain people or certain groups of people or even yourself that you're cultivating loving kindness for, you should probably sit with that for a few weeks, maybe a month or two, and, you know, really focus in on that. And then as you're going through life and you're observing, okay, I have more loving kindness for this person or this group of people I can see in my interactions. I can see in the way that I think about this person. I can objectively observe that there's more loving kindness here. So now I'm observing this hatred and anger for this person or this group of people. Now let me do that. Let me put them into my meditation. And now you do that for several weeks or maybe months. So sometimes we think the way that we change the emotions is through pills. And, you know, you take a pill and you get rid of a headache in 30 minutes. And we think that sometimes meditation works that same way. And I would like to just remind you that if you're going to include someone in your meditation for loving kindness, be sure they're in there for a while, that the mind is fully transformed and that you've uprooted this anger, hatred, and ill will and moved in this loving kindness before you move them out of your meditation. And then at any point in the future, if you've moved them out of your meditation and you observe that there's still some residual anger or resentment or any kind of ill will or even irritation or an annoyance, be sure you put them back in your meditation for a period of time so that you fully uproot that out of the mind. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. On Facebook, Tonka asks, I have a question about universal truth of non-self. It is clear that there is no permanent self since mind and body are not permanent, but it is not clear that there is no self at all. Am I missing something? Yeah, you need to look closer and realize that there is no self. So there's this physical body, there's this mind, and then there's the person. The Buddha calls it the person. There's these three things, right? And the person is this unique combination of the body and the mind. But none of these things are who you are as a person. That's what the universal truth of non-self is explaining to you. So the universal truth of non-self doesn't say that there's no physical body, that there's no mind. Like, surely you can touch this tangible physical body and you can see that this physical body exists, but this physical body isn't David or any self-identity that may be in the mind. That's not who you are as a person. So you need to deeply see, and it takes a while for the mind to really understand this, that this physical body isn't Tonka. That's not who you are. Like if, for example, if for some reason your arm got amputated, there's not less Tonka around. It's just that that arm doesn't exist anymore because that arm was impermanent. If you've been a teacher, for example, or an accountant, or if you've been any particular career in your life and you've identified with that is who you are as a person. Well, when you change jobs to another job because that job is impermanent, 
you're not less of a person because you've changed jobs. So that self-identity that's in the mind in this physical body isn't who you are as a person. That's what the universal truth of non-self is, that there is no permanent self. This label of Tonka was given to you at some point in your life, but that's not who you are. That's just to label this physical body and this mind coming together in this person we call Tonka. But this name isn't even who you are. Like you could change your name to something else, to Barbara or Susan or Rebecca, and that doesn't change who you are as a person. You're still this being that has this certain physical body and you have this mind. The name or the identity that's in the mind doesn't change who you are as a person. And this changes to this physical body doesn't change who you are as a person. That's essentially what the Buddha is explaining in the universal truth of non-self, that as this physical body changes and as the various things in the mind change, that doesn't change you as a person or who you are as a person because those things don't define you. So like if you got overweight and you became overweight, that doesn't define who you are, even though other people might think of it that way, but you shouldn't think of it that way. Or as you change jobs or careers or you do different things, maybe you were a wife at one point and now you're not a wife, you're a single woman. You know, if you identified with being a wife, when you get a divorce, right away the mind's going to crave to be with another person so that you can hurry up and kind of regain that title of being a wife because the mind sees that as who you are, as your identity. And when you lose that because of impermanence, the mind's going to crave to get back to being a wife. And this is where people will bounce around in relationships because of the loneliness and the craving and also the identity of thinking that that's who they are as a person. So you've got to train the mind to realize that you're not this body, you're not this mind, that's just this unique combination of a physical body and mind that's come together, but that doesn't define who you are as a person because these things are constantly changing. Thank you, sir. On YouTube, Tricia asks, hello, sir. What are some things one can do other than meditation to help let go of the ego? If you look at chapter 16 in volume one, there's multiple things that I list there to help you understand how to let go of the ego because the ego is comprised of the personal existence view, which is that first fetter, and the eighth fetter of conceit, these two things together. So what we were just talking about with Tonka, as well as arrogance, pride, measuring and comparing, you know, judging other people. These two things are what we call the ego. So there's multiple things that need to happen in order to train the mind to become humble. I'll just share a few of them, but you should definitely look at chapter 16. If I was you, I suggest sitting on the floor that instead of sitting on a sofa at home, watching TV or whatever, sit on the floor. This is where I teach that you've got to go through the body in order to get to the mind, right? Because the mind is the boss, the body's the employee. So if you put the body in humble positions, then the mind will be humbled. So even though everyone else is maybe sitting in chairs and is on the sofa, you sit on the floor. You're not putting yourself below people. You're just choosing to be humble. Same thing with where you sleep. If you put your mattress on the floor, getting down into bed and getting up out of bed each day, this humbles the mind. At the retreat this summer, I'm going to be teaching people how to wash feet 
washing people's feet like your parents or your wife or your aunts and uncles and elders in your family, this can be very humbling to the mind, is getting down on your knees, putting your elders in your community, put their feet in a, in a big basin, put their hands together, pouring water over their hands, washing their feet, saying kind, generous words to them, maybe giving them some flowers or something like this. This is very humbling to the mind. And again, it's just like meditation. You can't do just one thing. You can't just wash someone's feet once and then boom, the mind's humble. You can't just sit on the floor once and the mind's humble. You need to do this consistently over a long-term period of time. Those are a few things. Clothing, having very simple clothing, not allowing the mind to choose which clothing to wear. So if you just stack your clothing up, so you wash your clothes and you put all your shirts and pants or whatever you wear just in a stack and you just grab off the top and you wear it. Because what the ego wants to do is the ego wants to look at the closet, think about what am I doing today? Who am I going to see? Who do I want to impress? Oh, I got this really cool shirt. I got these really nice uh, whatever. And I want to grab that because I want to impress these people, right? That's that arrogance, the pride. So you'd like to basically starve the ego of any oxygen, deprive it of oxygen and don't even give it a chance to choose. So by you just stacking your clothes up in your closet or however you do them, put them in a, on a hangers, you just grab off the front, just grab off the front. It doesn't matter who you're going to see, what you're going to do. You just grab off the front and grab off the front and you just go out and train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter what you're wearing. And that's the way to ensure that your mind isn't projecting this self-image into the world, trying to be somebody in front of certain people that you're going to encounter on that day. Those are some ways. There's some other ways that I put into the book. So you should read those, but these are some of the ways that you can do on a consistent basis. You know, here in Asia, people tend to sit on the floor a lot. People tend to sleep on the floor a lot. This is part of their culture, partially because you know, they lack the resources in some families to actually afford furniture. But it's very beneficial for them because it allows them to humble the mind. So even though in countries that have more wealth, we might have very luxurious furnitures or fabrics or bedding or things like this, we have to train the mind to be humbled through the things that we participate in on a daily basis. And then lastly, but there's some others in the book, is wherever you see arrogance or ego or pride coming up in the mind, you cut it off and let it go. So where you see that you're maybe walking down the hall at work or you observe something as you're driving in the car and right away you might feel the arrogance and ego or pride come up, you got to cut it off. Or if you see certain speech that you're having, just cut it off and let it go. Train that you're observing the mind, you're observing the thoughts, you're observing the speech that the mind's producing. And wherever you see any arrogance or pride or boastfulness or anything like this coming up in the mind or coming out in your speech, that you cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to continue to do that. Jerk it back, yank it back, restrain the mind. Even if you're mid-sentence and you're talking to somebody face-to-face and you realize, oh my goodness, this is so arrogant. Why am I even saying this? Just cut it off right there, you know, change the subject or 
say something different, you know, rephrase what you're about to say. Even if the person's like, huh, what, what were you saying? Oh, never mind. Don't worry about that. What I was meaning to say is, here you go. And then re, re-speak that without the arrogance and without the pride. Um, she also asks, with acts of generosity, does one do these acts anonymously to help with the ego? Yes, that can be really helpful because oftentimes when people are practicing generosity, they want to take credit for it, right? We see this uh, in many different places in the world. So if you're making offerings anonymously in certain situations, sometimes you can't be anonymous in your offerings, then that's really helpful for the mind. So like you probably know in the Facebook group at the end of the month or the beginning of the month, I always publish a list of names of people who donated in order to thank them. There's some students who have contacted me and said, you know, David, you know, um, I appreciate that you're, you know, you're interested in sharing this publicly, but if you could just remove my name off the list, that would be fine. You know, I would appreciate that. So you can do those kind of things where you see somebody interested to give you credit publicly. You can choose to ask if they could potentially not do that any longer. Or if you can donate or do generosity and practice generosity in anonymous ways, that's really helpful for the mind so that there's no pride or arrogance that rises up in the mind as a result of practicing generosity. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. On Facebook, uh, Denise Davis asks, sir, can you explain Kama again? Thank you. Sure. So the natural law of Gamma, or some people use the word karma, right? Gamma, this natural law of gamma, it, it exists around us all the time, and it's affecting us whether we know this natural law or not. It's just like gravity. Gravity affects us whether we realize that it's there or not. When we were two years old, we didn't know anything about gravity. When we were six years old, we didn't know anything about gravity. But we knew that you know, when we had our toy and we dropped it and it broke, we knew that there was something going on. We just didn't know what it was called over time we gradually started learning about gravity and we started understanding oh there's this natural law that affects us whether we know about it or not and the more wisdom we got about the natural law of gravity we started making wiser and wiser decisions about how we move about the world in certain objects that we have that we'd like to put in a special place we started learning and gaining wisdom about this natural law of gravity and we now make wiser decisions and we can function more peacefully and harmoniously and contently and joyfully with this natural law of gravity that we couldn't do when we were two years old or six years old or so forth. So the natural law of gamma is the same way. It's functioning whether we realize it or not. But the more that we understand about this natural law, the more wisdom we gain about it. That's where we then are able to make wiser decisions that lead to more wholesome outcomes. So what the Buddhist teachings are doing is they're explaining this natural law of gamma. His teachings are essentially layer by layer exposing you to more and more of this natural law of gamma. So when I talk about the Buddhist teachings are sharing the natural laws of existence, there's multiple natural laws that he's sharing, but the primary natural law that he's sharing is the natural law of gamma. And natural law of gamma is cause in effect or action and result essentially it's the results of our decisions so for example denise the first time you ran across my videos or my books or my facebook group or whatever it was 
you started looking at those things and you might have thought like, oh, wow, this person seems polite. They seem kind. They seem friendly. They seem interested and motivated and enthused to help other people. I think I would like to learn from this guy. Let me get some more information about what this guy's teaching. And you started digging in and you started investigating, you know, what I was teaching. And that's the natural law of gamma, that by a teacher being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, they're going to attract students and students are going to be interested to learn with them. Whereas if I was impolite, if I was unkind, if I was unfriendly and disrespectful, and people could see that in the books and the videos and the Facebook group and the way that I personal message people when people have personal guidance with me if I was disrespectful and impolite arrogant talking down to people students aren't going to be interested in learning with me right so that's the natural law of gamma that as a result of my decisions of choosing to develop my practice to the point where I'm polite kind friendly respectful with people there's a large amount of students who choose to learn with me and I'm able to share the teachings with them in such a way that helps them. But it's not just a teacher and a student, it's also in our workplace, it's also in, with our neighbors, it's also in our personal and professional relationships that as we interact in the world, through our intentions, our speech, our actions, our livelihood, the way that we control our mind or not, these things are all affecting how our relationships are conducted. So it's all about the results of our decisions. So like the five precepts, this is helping you to understand the natural law of gamma as it relates to the five precepts. The five precepts are things like not killing, not stealing, not having sexual misconduct, not lying, not taking substances that cause heedlessness. Now, these are very rudimentary translations. The actual words of the Buddha are much deeper than this. But I use the five precepts as a way to help you see that these aren't commandments. These aren't rules. This isn't the Buddha trying to force people to do certain things. This is him explaining to you that if you cause harm in the world, harm is going to come to you. So when we kill living beings, other people are going to be interested in harming us. This is why people who murder get murdered. This is why people who murder go to jail. This is why people who murder have guilt and shame and fear in their own mind. You know, all these discontent feelings. Same thing when we steal, right? We cause harm to others. Harm comes to us. So the natural law of gamma of cause and effect is that every single thing that occurs in the world, there is a cause and there's an effect, right? So if we would like to use any kind of events that you would come up with, you can look at the world and you can see all the things that are occurring in the world are happening as a result of our decisions. So if we live on a coastline, for example, and we live near the ocean or near the sea, and this is an area where tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis or things like this come and our house is destroyed. Our house hasn't become destroyed because of bad luck. It's become destroyed because we chose to live on a coastline. And that coastline is very turbulent. There can be floods, there can be tsunamis, there can be tornadoes, there can be hurricanes that come into that area. And because of our choice of choosing to locate our dwelling in that location, 
then that's our cause, that's the action, and the result or the effect is is that our house every five years, every 10 years, every 20 years, what have you, is getting destroyed. And that's why our insurance is so expensive because that's our choice to live in that area. So everything that we experience in life is a choice and it's our choice that produces certain results. And the more that we understand this natural law through the Buddhist teachings, then we make wiser and wiser choices because we know the harms that are in the world. So when we clean up our moral conduct, for example, when we clean up our mental discipline through the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, then we gain this wisdom to now make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results. So everything is cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. Here's a funny one. Why do I have a big stomach you know, on, my, on the body? Well, when I was a kid, my parents didn't really teach us good eating habits. I used to come home from school. I used to eat snack cakes and pizzas and potato chips and Doritos. And I ate sugary cereal all through my childhood. I was eating very unhealthy food all through my childhood. So as I aged, you know, early in life, when I was a kid, you know, I was thin as a nail. But then once I got into college and I got a little bit older, my metabolism slowed down. I was still making those bad choices about food. So now I was putting in all these unwholesome calories into the body and I got this stomach now. Well, why? Well, there's a cause and effect, an action and result, because I don't have the wisdom back then of how to eat healthy. And I accumulated all this weight. And the reason why I have this stomach is because of this cause or this action of eating unhealthy food. And this is because of lack of wisdom and, of course, craving, right? There's craving there to eat this unhealthy food. And I ate a lot of fast food growing up as I was going through life. So everything that we experience, even our physical appearance and everything, is a result of our decisions, this cause and effect or this action and result. Why am I living here in Thailand? Well, 20 years ago, I started spending time with Thai people. I came to Thailand for the first time. I really observed that they were very peaceful and kind and loving. Got very intrigued about that. Started you know, doing Thai massage in America. Started having employees that were Thai. Started spending more time around Thai people. Started coming to Thailand more frequently. Ended up marrying a Thai wife. You know, da, 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 right on down the road. There was this cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. It wasn't just one day I woke up and said, oh, let's move to Thailand. There was this whole series of events that occurred that made me feel comfortable to the point where I was like, hey, I would like to live in Thailand. And that's ultimately what I would like to do. So everything that we encounter in the world is based on our own decisions, our own choices. And when we make wise, wholesome choices, we're going to experience that wholesome outcome. But when we're making unwise, unwholesome decisions, we're going to experience this unwholesome outcome. And the more you learn the Buddhist teachings and you train the mind to get rid of that pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance, by arising this wisdom, you now eliminate craving and anger. And now instead of making decisions through craving and anger and this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, you start making decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. 
And when you base your decisions in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, they will produce wholesome results. Where when you're basing your decisions in craving, anger, and ignorance, it's going to produce unwholesome results because those are the unwholesome roots. The wholesome roots are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, and those will produce wholesome outcomes for you. Thank you, sir. Um, also on Facebook, uh, Tonka um, has a follow-up question to her question before. She says, if I may clarify a bit more, are we a unique person that is a combination of body and mind and is always changing and shouldn't be identified with any of the roles we have in life? Yes, that's a great way to think about it, Tonka. Very good way. Is that any role that you fulfill, you fulfill that role enthusiastically with interest to perform it well, but understand that that's not who you are as a person because that role is going to change. You're not going to permanently be a worker in a nursing home, for example, because I know that's what you do. You're not going to permanently be working in that job. So if you take this on as your identity of who you are and you revel in that so much, then when you're no longer working at a nursing home, you're going to be discontent because the mind is craving and clinging and holding on to the job and then holding on to that identity in your mind that you're a care provider in a nursing home. Or like if you were a police officer, or if you're an airplane pilot, or if you're in the military, or you're a musician, for example, or you're an artist. And now all of a sudden, based on certain changes in the physical body or things that are going on in your life, you're no longer able to do those things. Your mind's going to be very discontent if you see that's who you are as a person. So what the Buddha is training you to do is to recognize and realize that this physical body and these identity in the mind isn't who you are so that now when all these things start changing you won't be discontent so if i saw this physical body is who i am as a person then when that physical body started changing around college and i started getting a, a stomach i would have been discontent i remember the first time i was driving down the road in my four by four jeep and I hit a bump and I felt a little wiggle. I was like, whoa, what was that? I've never felt that before. Because up to that point, I was thin. I didn't know what that was. I was like, whoa, what's that wiggle? Hold on a second. I've never felt that wiggle before. And the mind was kind of discontent for like 30 seconds, you know, to a minute. Like, hold on a second. Am I, am I getting, you know, overweight? Where when you realize like, ah, this body isn't who you are, you know, you're just making decisions in life and you would like to care for this physical body and make sure it's healthy, but this body isn't who you are. So that way when we age and there's this impermanence of the physical body, we're not discontent about that. We just understand it as impermanence. And when our different roles in society change, that our mind, if it doesn't have this self-identity that it's holding on to, when all these things start changing, you won't be discontent. So this can be really helpful for you that when you realize non-self, when you eliminate that fetter of personal existence view, you won't get discontent when the body's changing and you won't get discontent when your roles in different things that you're doing in daily activities are changing because you know those things are impermanent and that's not who you are as a person. You could be a food server, you could be a taxi driver, you could be a nursing home worker, you can do any of these things and, and you'd be completely content with it because that's not who you are as a person. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, also, can we do loving kindness meditation 
focused on someone almost doing it preemptively if there are say with the job that this being is currently doing there are a couple of residents whose behavior towards others has been noticed to be regularly harsh and knowing that this being is going to interact with them and that's their life practices to speak harshly can we do loving kindness meditation focusing on that person sort of to guard against developing any feelings of ill will frustration or annoyance towards them sir absolutely you can do that and you can even do it not only for specific people but you could do it for groups of people you know sometimes the way that i would do loving kindness meditation is like i think you've heard this before miranda you know where i say you know may all those beings who treat me well be peaceful right and then you go through all the four statements and then may all those beings who i've caused harm to be peaceful safe well free of discontent may all those beings who have caused harm to me you know be peaceful be safe be well be free of discontent so you can do it as either individual people or you can do it as groups of people too so you might do you know may all the residents of the facility where i work be peaceful may all the co-workers may all the supervisors you know all that you could focus that way if you're observing that you're struggling or you may potentially interact in a situation where you think the mind might struggle you could create these rings specifically for the individuals that are there and that you're interacting with on a regular basis. And also, if you're at work and say you just had an interaction with somebody and you feel the anger arising in the mind and you can slip away in a closet somewhere or go somewhere and do a little brief uh, loving kindness meditation for that person specifically because you'd like to wipe that anger clean as soon as possible if you allow it to kind of sit in the mind it can get more firmly rooted so if you're on your way home in a car and somebody cuts you off and you get angry at that person right away when you get home like at some point in the evening you would like to probably put that person in your loving kindness meditation so you don't allow that anger for that person to get rooted in the mind so you might say you know may that driver that cut me off be peaceful and then you might even say may all drivers in the community be peaceful this will help to cultivate in your mind this loving kindness towards people who are driving around you thank you sir. you're welcome it appears that are those are all the questions that we have for today sir okay well thank you all for joining i appreciate all your questions Remember to practice meditation two to three times a day. That's breathing mindfulness meditation and then integrate loving kindness into that as well. Two to three sessions per day and you'd like to build up to 30 minutes or more. That's what you're working towards. And as you do that, you'll gradually start seeing the improvement to the condition of the mind. There's multiple steps as part of this path to enlightenment. Meditation is one of the primary things that we're doing in order to transform the mind and cultivate the mind to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. But there's other things that we do too. So you wouldn't be able to meditate your way to enlightenment, but you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation either. There's a combination of meditation and all these other steps on the Eightfold Path that is gradually transforming the mind and moving it closer and closer to enlightenment. This Sunday, we're going to be in chapter four of this book, 
developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment. And chapter four is titled The Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. This is vitally important to learn and understand as part of your journey to enlightenment. And you can't really learn the Four Noble Truths enough. If you've learned this once or twice or even three times with me in the past, it's important to hear it multiple times and really soak it in to the mind so that you deeply understand the Four Noble Truths because without establishing right view, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. You wouldn't even really be able to make significant progress without understanding right view because this is where you understand what is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the path forward of how to eliminate discontentedness. This is the first discourse of the Buddha, and I'm going to be sharing that with you on Sunday. So you can read that in the book, either before and or after class. That way you'll glean the most benefit out of our time together on Sunday in class. And then next Wednesday will be our very last session of this four-part series, of loving kindness meditation. And then after that, we'll go into a four-part series on Buddhist chanting so that I can help you build up your practice around Buddhist chanting. So thank you again for joining today. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.